0: Good morning. morning. And uh, welcome to our visitors. There's uh, several visitors here today. I want to welcome you guys here today and let you know that everything in our lobby that's out there on the table is all free material and it's for sharing. So if you want to take some for yourself or if you know people you like to share it with, take as much as you want until it's gone and we'll just resupply it next week. So it's all for free. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many blessings you've provided for us. And as we study today about the most important event in universal history, we pray that you will enlighten our minds to know the truth about these things, we pray in your holy name, amen. Amen. And we are studying the the 13th lesson of the book of Luke entitled Crucified and Risen, which is about, of course, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. And as you think about that, the title, Crucified and Risen, do you have a, a clarity in your mind why Christ had to die? What was his purpose? What did he achieve? What was accomplished? Why was it necessary? And just this morning, as I was reviewing my notes for this class, I got an email from somebody, uh, and they emailed me a link, and I put the entire article for this, this uh, blog in here from Brian Sand, and uh, about Jesus died, it's the title, Jesus died for us, not for God. And... Uh, and what he means by this and I'm going to share it with you is basically he didn't die to change God. He died because we needed it. So and I'm going to read to you a little bit from the article the whole articles here but to get some thoughts about this. he starts with um, Acts chapter 3 verse 15 the Apostle Peter is, is speaking here and this is what the Apostle Peter says in Acts 3:15You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead." Remember this, this talk that, that Peter was having with the, uh, the church leadership and he told them, you're the ones who did that. Well, here's his article. Galgotha is where the great crimes of humanity, pride, rivalry, blame, violence, domination, war, and empire are dragged into the searing light of divine judgment. At Galgotha, we see the system of human organization that we blithely call civilization for what it is. An axis of power enforced by violence so corrupt that it is capable of murdering God in the name of what we call truth, justice, and liberty. Galgotha is also the place where the love of God achieves its greatest expression. As Jesus is lynched in the name of religious truth and imperial justice, he expresses the heart of God as he pleads for the pardon of his executioners. At the cross, we discover that God revealed that the God revealed in Christ would rather die in the name of love than kill in the name of freedom. Our Savior is Jesus Christ, not William Wallace. The cross is both hideous and glorious, simultaneously ugly and beautiful. It's a hideous; it's as hideous as human sin and as glorious as divine love. It is a collision of sin and grace, but it is not a contest of equals. In the end, love and beauty win. What the cross is not is a quid pro quo where God agrees to forgive upon receipt of his son's murder. What the cross is not is an economic transaction whereby God gains the capital to forgive. The legal and fiscal models of understanding the cross simply will not do. Jesus does not save us from God. Jesus reveals God as Savior. What is revealed on Good Friday is not a monstrous deity requiring a virgin to be thrown into a volcano or a firstborn son to be nailed to a tree. What is revealed on Good Friday is the depths of human depravity and the greater depths of God's love. I'm skipping down some of the article if you want to read the whole article. It's in the notes. Think of it this way. Where do we find God on Good Friday? Is God found in Caiaphas seeking a sacrificial scapegoat? Is God found in Pilate requiring a punitive execution? Or is God found in Jesus absorbing sin and responding with forgiveness? The Apostle Paul says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 2 Corinthians 5.19. And this should not be misread as God reconciling himself to the world, as some mistaken atonement theories do. Jesus died for us, not for God. The crucifixion is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The crucifixion is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. The crucifixion is not the ultimate attempt to change God's mind about us. The cross is the ultimate attempt to change our minds about God. God is not like Caiaphas, seeking a sacrifice. God is not like Pilate, requiring an execution. God is like Jesus, absorbing sin and forgiving sinners. As long as we think Jesus died... For God, instead of dying for us, we will never see the sinfulness of human civilization and the beauty of the divine alternative, the kingdom of God. The justice of God is not retributive justice. In the end, retributive justice changes nothing. The justice of God is entirely restorative. The only thing God will call justice is setting the world right, not punishing the innocent. The bottom line is this. God did not kill Jesus. Human civilizations did. We did. Jesus absorbed the blow in love and forgave us. The Father vindicated His Son on Easter. Now, Jesus calls us to follow Him into the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of love, the kingdom of God. What do you all think? (laughs) Any thoughts about this? Any concerns? If you want to read it, I put the link in too where you can go to the actual website and then you can read some of the comments that came in. There's a hundred or so comments that have followed and you can read some of those. Any anybody in here have a question about this? Because I thought it was very well done, very well done.
1: My question: Did God vindicate His Son on a Sunday on Easter Sunday, or did Christ take up His own life?
0: Yes, and and I think that's an element where where you know Jesus said, "No one can take my life; I give it freely, and I lay it down. I will take it up again." So there's that aspect of it as well. But if you see me, you've seen the Father, and so the angel came and says to Jesus, "Your Father calls you home." And so the father was not the son reconciling the world to himself. So I don't know how how far we can dissect that aspect there. First paragraph in Sabbath's lesson, it says, from childhood, Jesus was conscious. By the way, I just want to say, uh, regarding this, some of the criticisms that came in to um, the author, Brian, on this issue, was that, well, he does a nice job of presenting the moral influence theory. That he presents... God as trying to influence us to trust him again. But he's forgotten the whole need for the penalty of sin to be paid. And this is some of the criticism that he in. Does that surprise anyone?
2: No. Oh. <laughs>
0: yeah, and, and he does a great job. He, he's trying to contrast ultimately in how we see God and why he died. But he, he, I don't think he necessarily takes every element to its conclusion. For instance, as we said in this class, and maybe we'll get to it in the notes here in a moment, but the purpose of Christ's death, according to Scripture, he died in Hebrews 2.14, that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. First, uh, 2 Timothy um, one, nine and ten, that by his death he might destroy death and bring life and immortality to light. In first John three, eight, that by his death he might destroy the devil's work. And the devil's work to obliterate the image of God and man and put Satan's image in the spirit temple where God's image is to be. And Christ came to destroy the the, the lies about God that Satan is told to win us to trust and to destroy the infection of selfishness in the in the human species and restore godliness into the species human. Yes? I
1: also like another element like of that to demonstrate to the other worlds what the conclusion of sin is. Yes, absolutely.
0: First, uh, that's Colossians chapter 1. Yes, and several other places where it says that the angels long to look in these things or, or um, everything in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, into the lesson. From childhood, Jesus was conscious that he had come to this earth to fulfill his Father's will. He taught, taught, healed, and ministered with an unwavering commitment to obey the Father. Now the time had come after celebrating the Last Supper to walk alone, to affirm God's will, to be betrayed and denied, to be tried and crucified, and to rise victorious over death. What was the Father's will for Christ? Well, we, we read a text in the blog that I just read, Second Corinthians 5.19. God was in the sun reconciling the world to himself. Does that express God's will? God's goal? God's, God's agenda? He wants to bring the world back into harmony with him. How about this one, John seventeen four and 6. Jesus praying to his father. After he said, Life eternals that they might know you the only true God in Jesus Christ now sent he says I have brought you glory on the earth by finishing the work you have given me to do I have revealed you does, does, does do these texts give any indication on what God's purpose and will for Christ was and what he was achieving there yeah
1: well, might just be the minister Feel the
0: Father. Rightly understood, obey the Father is fine. Yes. But if you look through certain models, that can ox- sound very um thoughtless. It's he's got his list of things, he's been commanded, he's a uh, a being under orders, he doesn't think about it, he just carries out his orders. And it could sound that way. I don't think that's hopefully what they mean hopefully they understand obedience is really living in harmony with god's character of love and expressing it perfectly was it necessary for as jesus prayed to his father i've finished the work you gave me to do i have revealed you was it necessary for jesus to reveal god because
2: because of the lies yeah. that were cast against them.
0: And and, and and what is the consequence if those lies aren't refuted? Why is that necessary? What, functionally, what happens if it doesn't if It doesn't happen? Christ doesn't reveal the truth. What are the lies functionally doing?
2: They, they still seem to doubt in the mind of those followers. About? The character of God.
0: And so if God has remedy to cure our condition, but we believe lies about him, does it matter that he has remedy? If we believe lies, that he's untrustworthy, he's severe, he's arbitrary, he's cruel, he's the one we need to fear. And much of Christianity, if you really look at the doctrines of Christianity, take your time sometime, and actually go down, especially atonement doctrines, judgment doctrines, and look at these doctrines and ask functionally, what's this doctrine doing? And ask this particular question. How many of these doctrines are operationally designed to protect me from God? Think about it. How many doctrines do we teach they are there to protect us from God, as if God is the enemy. And Scripture, of course, makes it clear, if God is for you, who can be against you? He would not somebody but gave him up. How we not along with him give us all things? God is for us. He's always for us. He is not the enemy. Sin is the enemy. Satan is the enemy. He's the accuser. God is for us. But how many doctrines do we have that actually functionally? Can you all think of, are your computers going? where you're starting to knock off these doctrines in your head, the things you've been taught, that, yeah, you know what? That's important. What am I praying for? Am I praying for the robe of righteousness to hide me from the Father? Am I praying for the blood to be applied to my record book in heaven so the Father can't judge me? Am I praying for an advocate to plead with the Father on my behalf? Am I am I praying for things because I, I don't trust the Father? This is why He came to reveal the truth about the Father. Do you see me? You've seen, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Whoever interceded with Jesus to be kind to someone, to be gracious to someone. Even when Jesus was, was, was washing the feet of Judas' his betrayer, who was protecting Judas from Jesus? Wow. If, if you've seen the Father, do you understand this is the Father doing this? You've seen me. The Father's in the Son. This is the Father washing His feet. Second paragraph. It says uh, throughout his life, Jesus knew about the inevitability of the cross. Many times in the Gospels, the word "must" is used in in relationship to the suffering of G- of the death of Jesus. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be lifted up, and so on. Nothing would deter the Son of God from going to Golgotha. He denounced the uh, t- he denounced as coming from Satan any suggestion. To reject the cross, he was convinced that he must go, suffer, be killed, and be raised. To Jesus, the journey to the cross was not an option. It was a must. Any thoughts about that? Does this mean Jesus didn't have a choice?
2: No.
0: So how do you understand this must? The Bible uses the word, must, must, must. How do you understand it? Yes? It was
1: imperative. Something he needed to do. Something he had to do to reveal the Father to
0: us. Oh, no. See, you just, you just added a clause there.
1: Yeah, but that's the must.
0: See, it's not, a, it's I not, didn't have a choice. it's not he must. It's yeah. he must if. It's he must if he wants an outcome. If he wants certain events to happen. If he wants certain things to transpire, then he must. This is the means whereby a certain con- uh, a consequence he achieves happens. It's not that he must for his need. It's he must if he wants those outcomes, then he must. You following me? This is out of Zirevajes six twenty three. The grain of wheat that, that preserves its own life can produce no fruit. It abides alone. Speaking on the on the parable of the Jesus talked about the grain of wheat falling, dying, and bringing forth much fruit, this was commenting on this. Christ could, if he chose, save himself from death. He had that choice. But should he do this, he must abide alone. He could bring no sons and daughters to God. Only by yielding up his life could he impart life to humanity. Only by falling into the ground to die could he become the seed of the vast harvest, the great multitude that out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people redeemed to God. He had the freedom. He wasn't a pre-programmed computer cyborg that had no choice and must do these things, as when you program your computer, your computer must do certain things. It wasn't that way. It was must if. Must if he wants this outcome. If he wants this achievement, then he must. Why, though, must he? Yes, comment.
2: Could it be that Jesus had made his choice from the foundation of the world?
0: Of course he did, yes. Yes.
2: And so, just like you and I, we have to continue making our choices daily.
0: Yes. She she said, didn't Jesus make this choice at the foundation of the world? Absolutely he did. But he still, it was the must in order to achieve the outcome that he wanted. Not because he personally was pre-programmed or some way to do this. But why was this the must? Why was this the way? And it's, it's very simple. It's because this is how reality works. This is how the cosmos is built. God is love. He wants all his intelligent creatures to love and trust him and operate in harmony with his character of love. Love cannot be programmed like a computer. It requires genuine freedom. Further, love cannot be obtained by force, deceit, threat, or punishment. Therefore, the only means to fix this creation and to restore the universal love was for Christ to be become, become part of this creation, to actually live perfectly, love perfectly as a member of this species, and ultimately refuse at all costs, including the cost of his own life, to act in self interest. Thus, destroying this infection with which we're born of survival of the fittest, watching out for number one, protecting me, self interest. And establishing a perfect humanity, he becomes the second Adam, the perfect human. And thus, he's divine. We're the branches. We're grafted in. The Spirit takes what he's achieved, reproduces it in us. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get a new heart, right? Spirit, new motives. We die to self. We live to love for God and love for others. How do we get this? By trust in God, we open the heart and the supernatural power brings the achievements of Christ to a reality in our lives. I saw a hand Yes.
3: I think you alluded to it, and I was just going to mention, I was trying to simplify this in my mind a little bit. Because um, there was a lesson on it many years ago, just on this, this uh, lesson 13, you know, the whole 13 weeks, and I think we come to the conclusion that Satan always said that somebody could not live a perfect life. And Christ had to prove the fact, Not, I don't like to use the word prove, had to show that fact that a person that what's human could live a perfect life. And at the cross, that is what Christ, what the moment he died, Satan knew that he was lost.
0: Yes, and why? I, I don't dispute. That was one of the elements, amongst several, that he needed to reveal. Why was that particular element necessary? If, 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 if that were not true, what's the problem with that? If, if a human couldn't live a perfect life, what's the problem with that? God's design was faulty to There you go. See, this is the issue. What he proved at the cross, what he proved in his life is there was no manufacturer's defect.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's what he proved. The manufacturer didn't have a defect in the design. Not only the design for the human being, but the design for how he has constituted reality to operate. Both designs are perfect. There's no defect in the design. That was what was demonstrated because the allegation was, God, your design doesn't work. Your system of doing things, your design protocols for life, what you call your law, it doesn't work. And because it doesn't work, no intelligent being can really live in harmony with it. It doesn't work. And so, yes, th- there was this demonstration that it could be done, and it was done. And so that was part of refuting part of the lies about God's character, which undermines trust. But was that all that was necessary? was an achievement here as well. Yes?
2: I think... Uh that he but i think he use it in that that is to say that at the cross god's character was perfectly revealed christ's character was perfectly revealed and satan's
0: character. yes <laughs> satan exposed himself as a liar and a fraud all yes
2: so because of that that dealt with the controversial issue that was the great controversy on
0: the, on the aspect of god's trustworthiness and satan's fraudulent allegations revealing all sides of that yes yeah. but if you think about the ransom metaphor. Because there's lots of metaphors in Scripture, but all metaphors point to a cosmic reality. If there is no reality behind the metaphor, the metaphor has no meaning. Think that through. If there's no reality behind the metaphor, there's no meaning. It's fantasy at that point. It's not metaphor anymore. It's fantasy. Okay? So the metaphor of the ransom, ransoms the operationally function to achieve a certain end, and that end is to free some, someone being held in captivity or in bondage. The ransom is the price necessary to establish freedom. So if you think what holds humanity, human beings, in bondage of sin, there's two aspects, that two shackles that shackle us. One we've mentioned, which are the lies of Satan that we believe that keep us distrusting God, and thus the truth will set you free. But the other is our own carnal nature. All of our righteousness is filled. We are inherently fearful and self centered. Our minds are, are deceitful above all things and utterly really wicked. We cannot fix our own condition. Thus, Christ came to reveal a truth, to win us to trust, and to provide us with a new nature. This is the price necessary. Because this is how reality works. We're back to reality. And this is the reality. And so if you deal with people who like the penal model, they will often say, well, you're just focusing on one metaphor. You're focusing on the healing metaphor. And what you want to do with that is, you put it back at them and says, no, 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 no. All metaphor has a, a, a cosmic reality. Healing, regeneration, recreation, and perfection is not metaphor. That's the reality to which all the metaphors point in. And you ask them, are you saying it's only metaphorical that we get to have perfect, sinless state of being one day? That's metaphor? No, that's the reality. Sunday, it says, uh, we're looking at Gethsemane and the fearsome struggle at Gethsemane. As we review this, what do we learn from Gethsemane? And I have a list of questions. Yes.
2: Um, on this thing, why Christ had died and so forth, I found it fascinating in, on Friday in the further study comment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hesitate to bring this up because I think you'll probably get to it, but I don't know if you'll get that far. Um, Here, uh, fourth line, beginning in the further study. The angels scribe honor and adore to Christ, for even they are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. Without the cross, they would be no more secure against evil than were the in- angels before the fall of Satan.
0: Angelic perfection failed in heaven. That's last last seconds. yeah. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's well said. Anybody want to comment on that? Why is that true? See, the, 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 if you look at the historic reality, a third of the angels had already rebelled against God. Angelic perfection had failed in heaven. And what was the basis of the rebellion? lies about God that they believed, which broke the circle of love and trust. Those lies could not be refuted without the cross. The cross is the is the evidence necessary to destroy the lies and expose Satan. If you read other comments uh, in the same uh, source, you'll find things stated like, after the cross, Satan's movements were restricted. He could no longer wait the angels from heaven as they come to and fro the earth and, and harass them in the ways and, and so, so forth. He couldn't enter the heavenly courts anymore after the cross. Because God put a force field up around planet Earth? He's like, can't get off this thing anymore. No. What was that was restricting him? What restricted his movements?
1: The angels were immune to his
0: Exactly. There were no minds left in the universe that would listen to him. They'd all been settled, so settled into the truth that nothing could shake them from it, and they talked to the hand, not listen to you. And so he was shut out of their minds. The only minds on earth on in the universe that will listen to him now are found here. That's why his movements are restricted here. Great comment. So as we look at Gethsemane, do we see in Gethsemane Jesus struggling? Oh yeah. What was the source of his trial, his pain, his suffering? Where is that suffering originating?
1: From his human side his human nature.
0: Uh, so are you saying from within?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting, isn't it? Was God inflicting it upon him?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Did he experience human emotions? Yes. What? impact that his emotions have upon him? In other words, in what direction were the emotions pulling him?
1: Self-protection.
0: Yes, and you hear it expressed. He's in great agony. I'm so overwhelmed. I feel like I could die. Father, if it would possible. Let this cut pass from me. It's very clear he's agonizing with the temptations that we have when we're faced with something that threatens us. When we're faced with a threat to ourselves, we have an instinct, a very powerful instinct that comes up to protect ourselves. He was—he took upon himself this nature and he's being tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And we are tempted when we're and enticed by our own evil desires, James 1 says. So he had these emotions pulling him to act, to use his power to save self, save self, save self. Yes?
2: I have two questions in my mind that I'm trying to reconcile. Okay. With this. Uh, first of all, the... Moral influence theory that you've mentioned. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? But it's maybe not sufficient?
0: Yes, there's, no, there's nothing wrong in what it says. It's, it would be like this. You have a, a bacterial endocarditis, which is an infection at the inside of your heart. It's a great metaphor because we have an infection in our spiritual heart, Right. With sin. So we have this bacterial endocarditis, infection inside your heart. It's terminal. We're going to die if we don't get treatment. And somebody comes to you and they offer you remedy, and you're a Jew in 1941 Germany, and this man's name is Mengele. Are you going to take anything that man offers if you have a choice? Why not? You don't trust him. Absolutely right. If there's no trust, it doesn't matter if he has a remedy or not. You're not partaking of it. So trust has to be reestablished. That's the moral influence theory, reestablishing trust. Now, if you have a doctor uh, who's your father, who's loving and kind and gracious, and you trust him completely, but he has no remedy, will you get well from your endocarditis if you trust him, but no remedy? This is where the moral influence theory leaves it. It leaves it in trust, but it leaves us without remedy. Now, it's still better than penal theory. Penal theory tries to offer a remedy, but it offers a false remedy, which actually undermines trust in God. And therefore, it actually works against um, the plan of reconciliation. And why is, it, why is it better than penal theory? Because if you have that bacterial endocarditis and you are dealing with a loving father that you trust who does have a remedy, do you have to know anything about how the remedy was procured? Do you have to know anything about how the remedy works? Or do you just have to trust the doctor? And if you really trust him, he will provide the remedy and he will transform and heal and fix what's broken. Okay. So the moral influence theory will bring people back to a true saving experience even though it may not give the ultimate explanation of all that was necessary for that experience. But the penal models obstruct that, because the penal models teach a God who can't be trusted, a God we must be protected from, a God who, if we don't have somebody protecting us from him, he will strike out and kill us, and it actually presents God in the way that Satan is alleged and perpetuates God's lies. I mean, Satan's lies about God. Yes, second question.
2: My other question is, when I talk to others about this subject, they say that, Jesus on the cross felt the weight of everyone's sins, like he knew us from the beginning, and he knew about our sins, and that's what killed him. Therefore, he died for our sins, Uh, because he was—that's what he came to do—is to pay the.
0: So, if if you look in the New Testament, the word that's translated, the Greek word translated "sins," is, is is legitimately also translated "sin." It can be translated plural or singular. So if he died for our sin, does that sound different than he died for our sins? No? Yeah. He died for our sin, our sinful condition, our sinfulness, our, our iniquity, our fallen state, our our disease state. He died to heal and cure it. When we, when we put it on the sins, though, this is how the penal model looks. They want to have a record of every bad deed. And, and it actually is completely irrational and illogical if you think through it. Because they're saying, take these people who, you can have fun with these people. So so you're saying it was the weight of all the sins committed by everybody. And the more sins, the more suffering? Is that what you're saying? And they'll say? Yes. Yes. So then all the abortions that are happening, preventing millions of people being born who never commit sins by the trillions, and then Adolf Hitler and Stalin, who killed hundreds of millions of people and then shortened their lives so there was billions of sins not committed, they were actually relieving suffering from Christ.
1: <laughs>
0: well, see, this theory that they have, individual sins put on Christ, and the more and more sins that you have, then the more suffering you have. Well, if you reduce the number of sins, you reduce the number of suffering. So killing people so they can't sin reduces the number of sins, and you reduce suffering. Actually, aborting people so they're never born, then, then they can't ever commit sin, so we reduce by the millions and billions and trillions all these sins are never put on. it's irrational and illogical, this is individual acts, in my view, were never placed on Christ. What he was placed on him, what he took upon himself, he was made to be sin, though he knew no sin. So that we might become forgiven, pardoned, legally set right? No, we might become righteous. We might become righteous, the righteousness of God. Yes?
3: But if you look at the healing model, you can say that sin is the condition, and sins are some symptoms.
0: Exactly right.
3: Condition, and those are behaviors.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So back to the, then the model...
3: As, as related to the actual sin condition.
0: Right, exactly. The sins are the symptoms. and Jesus made this clear in Matthew 5. You say if you commit adultery, bad act. You commit sin. I say if you lust in your heart. You say if you commit murder, bad act. I say if you hate in your heart. He's telling us that the behaviors are merely symptoms of the condition. And it's the condition that needed curing. That's why go back to all the metaphors. Back to metaphor. Take out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. Circumstances of the heart by the spirit. We get the mind of Christ. We get reborn. We get the law written on the heart and mind. We're recreated in the inner man. All the metaphors are about something changing in us. Does that help? Okay.
2: Well, I mean, I know that. I just didn't know how to... Answer
0: questions like that. It, 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 it's a complete revelation that you're talking to somebody who's operating inside an imperial law lens. Yeah. They see things. They, and so, what you can do is you can just step back and say, before you answer that question, how do you understand God's law? Is God the creator, the designer, the builder of the fabric of the cosmos, His laws are the protocol upon which your alley functions, or does God's law functionally no different than what you and I can do? Just a list of rules. He's more powerful. He can he can punish more. He's got he's got a bigger a bigger hammer to beat you with. But other than that, His law is no different than ours. Which is it? Okay, and, so, and, and once they're under this imperial law, in other words, rules without consequence, unless somebody punishes you and, invo- and inflicts a the consequence, then they come up with all this distorted theology and atonement model stuff. Yeah. So, what about whenever we read how some people are going to be punished longer than others? Okay. So. Yes. So, how do we understand that? Anybody else besides me want to answer that one? Yes.
1: If you're so distorted, then it's gonna take longer for you to realize what's how you are away from God.
0: Right. So in the short version, I won't go through the long version. The long version you find at the question answer of our God in your brain DVD in the question answer section is a long answer to this. The short answer is what is it that causes the torment? Our own condition. The own unhealed condition. And when do we experience that torment from that condition? When? When do we ultimately get the full weight of it? When God reveals himself life-giving glory that the righteous are transformed by, but the fires of love and truth burn through the lies and distortions in the minds of people, and those with the greatest list of denial, distortions, uh, projections, externalizations, resistance, selfishness, list of sins, it takes longer for the truth to burn through in their own minds, thus they suffer in the flames of God's life-giving glory longer. And for those of you who haven't gone through the evidence of this, there's a whole bunch of Bible texts that this is built upon, and it's in the lecture, God in Your Brain. So, it's also in the book, The God-shaped Brain. There's a whole chapter on this. But yes, some do suffer longer, but it's not an infliction. It's a consequence of their condition. And Satan, with the greatest list of, and the deepest level of denial, it takes much longer for the truth to burn through all of his, his lies. Is,
1: is that <laughs> talking about now on Earth or at the end
0: of time? At the end of the thousand years. The Great White Throne Judgment. And we also deal with this also in our new DVD set, which we'll be releasing in two weeks. In a couple of weeks at the GC, our new DVD set, when we go through the uh, uh, difficult questions of the Bible, we actually ask, why does God raise people only to kill them again? Why does he do it? And we answer the question there as well. In more detail. So so the, Jesus experienced emotions that are tempting him. Why did an angel come to Jesus in Gethsemane? An angel came. Remember why? To
2: minister to him.
0: To do what? What did the angel do?
2: Ministered.
0: Ministered. Yeah. To, to specifically to give him physical strength. What would have happened had the angel not come to do that? Wait a second. He would have died in Gethsemane. He hadn't been beaten yet. He hadn't had a thorns put on his head yet. He hadn't had, he hadn't been put on a cross yet. The spear has not gone into his side yet. How how is it possible he's dying in Gethsemane? What's going on here?
3: Mental English.
0: Oh, and what's the mental, the weight of sins you talked about earlier? The weight of sin. What does sin functionally do? Unremedied, uncured, what's it functionally do? Separates, separates us from God. God. Separates us from God. what was Christ happening happening to him in Gethsemane? He is taking our substitutionary place in the condition to experience what unremedied sin actually does to the sinner. It separates their connection from God. That's what it does. Yes?
1: I- I find it encouraging that his needing that support was not a sin.
0: Yes, and the support, and I'm going to say that we're going to get to the why, what happened that. But yes, come in here. I'm you okay. So the support. What did the support do? Did it lessen the anguish? Yeah. Think about it. Somebody's dying of of metastatic bone cancer. It's through their whole body. They're in miserable, agonizing pain, and and they've been suffering this way, and now they're breathing their last. They're about to pass this world beyond the point of pain, right? And we do something to give them extra life so they can sustain it a little longer. Have we taken away their pain? No, this did not diminish his pain. It actually put him in a position to suffer it longer. And why was that necessary? This this strengthening was not anesthesia. It was not numbing medicine. He continued to suffer. Because there was more evidence to be revealed. There was more evidence to be revealed. The full malignity of Satan hadn't yet been revealed, which happens at the cross. But not only that, there was aspects of, of angels, it says in Scripture, angels longed to look into these things. We are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men, Paul says. And as they're watching, in universal history, you might ask the question, well, why after the promise in, in Genesis? Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head and every says we're told by inspired sources that every a faithful mother from that point forward was looking for the promise to be fulfilled looking for the child messiah to come to save us from our from, from our, our sin condition yet why did he wait so many thousands of years to come when in at least in the recorded history we have do you have a group of people on earth who appear to be following the blueprint. This is the first time. If you look at the nation of Israel, they kept going into idolatry and all this rebellious stuff over and over again. It was after their captivity, they came out and they got rid of their heathen wives, you remember? Divorced them all, got rid of them all, and they became very rigidly Adherence, and they began isolating. Instead of being ministers in, uh, to the world, they put up barriers and they became exclusive and they, and they had a rigid rule and they added rules upon rules and all the behaviors you have to do in order to keep the law. And here we now have a group of people who appear. They, they, they're, they're, their TVs are off by sunset on Friday. <laughs> they, uh, they pay a double tithe. Even on, their, even on their garden herbs, they pay a tithe. They, they do not eat anything on the unprescribed list. They'll even strain the gnat out of their soup. They don't want to get this, it, that unclean little piece of gnat. It's not, it's not on the clean list. Now, if it was a grasshopper, they'd have left it in. But gnats have to go. They're, they're on the unclean list. Okay, and, and they do all this stuff. Yet, even though they're keeping the blueprint, what do we learn? You can do all the right rules and still be an enemy of God. Adventists need to wake up and realize this. You can pay your tithe. You can eat the right foods. You can have the TV off by sunset on Sabbath and not have it on again until, or not even own a TV, not even wear makeup. You can do all the right rules and still crucify the Son of God. This is what was revealed. The angels realized something. You can't get what God wants by externals, nor can you get it by might and power. You can only get it by the way the Spirit works. And the Spirit is the Spirit of truth and love. Yes?
3: I want to digress. This to the original question. Why was the angel sent? I was thinking of Job. When God allowed Satan to go after Job, he had one stipulation. What was it? Don't take his life. Did God take his covering protection away from his son? with no stipulation of not, and he had to send somebody down there to say, all's going to be well, but you still have another, you know, 24 hours to go.
0: I think his humanity simply couldn't take the weight of what was happening. If you like Ellen White's writing, she wrote and um, found it in First Message, Messages 235, we are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of sin reacts upon the sinner. makes it more easy for him to sin again and separates himself from the source of blessing and the sure result is ruin and death. This is, this is, this is the consequence. Sin, remember, the, if you understand design law, it'd be like if you tie a plastic bag over your head, you're severing yourself from the source of life, oxygen, air. And the sure result of that severing yourself from that is ruin and death. Death. This is what happens. Yes, but God is the source of life. And sin severs our connection. And Christ it was becoming sin for us in Gethsemane. And we see that, and it's very powerful to recognize. Okay. Um, moving on to um, Monday's lesson. Top of the page, it says, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. This is a quote from Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Notice, Satan entered. Judas, according to the scripture. And what, what, do you, what do you see in Judas after that point? Do you see Judas, Judas begin to levitate? Do you see Judas begin to have objects float around the room? Do you see begin Judas talking in a weird voice? Does uh, he begin frothing at the mouth and cutting himself? Does he go into some type of hysterics and flop on the floor? No, what did Judas say? It's, it says, Satan entered Judas. And what do we see? What did Judas actually do after that? He acted selfishly, deceitfully. He rejected truth. He rejected love. He betrayed the one he claimed to love and serve. He joined with the religious institution of the day, used coercive power, and took away Jesus' freedom. Notice what he did. This is what this is, what, this is the heart of Satan's government. Coercive power to take away freedom and, and hurt people who don't do things your way. This is beastly. You look at the beast of Revelation, no one can buy or sell. say him who has the mark of beast. Coercive power to take away freedom. It's beastly. Tuesday's lesson, first two paragraphs. It says, For all else that it entails, the cross is also the great divider of history, the divider between faith and unbelief, between betrayal and acceptance, between eternal life and death. There is no middle ground for any human being concerning the cross. In the end, we are on either one side or the other. He who is not with me is against me, and he who, is not, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. That was uh, Matthew twelve thir- thirty. Strong words, and they can make us a bit uncomfortable, but Jesus is simply expressing what is real and what the truth entails for those who are immersed in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. We are with Jesus or with Satan. So, do people have a choice in whether they accept the God Jesus revealed, or not? Sure, they do. Yes. And if a person judges Jesus to be a fraud and rejects the God of love, preferring a God of course of power, what's the result? What happens to that person? What's the result? According
1: to the law of worship. Yeah. I don't like that God. Yeah. Law.
0: By beholding, we become changed. They sear their conscience, warp their character, harden their hearts. What if a person accepts Jesus, but misinterprets the entire meaning through the lens of imperial law, and thus believes God was executing Jesus on the cross? Well, this is Desire of Ages, page 57. At the cross of Calvary, love and selfishness stood face to face. Here was the crowning manifestation. Christ had lived only to comfort and bless, and in putting him to death, Satan manifested the malignity of his hatred against God. He made it evident that his real purpose of his rebellion was to dethrone God and destroy him through whom the love of God was shown. By by the life and death of Christ, the thoughts of men are also brought to view. From the manger to the cross, the life of Jesus was to call a call to self-surrender and to fellowship and suffering. It unveiled the purposes of men. Jesus came with the truth of heaven, and all who were listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit were drawn to him. The worshipers of self belonged to the kingdom. Notice this. The worshipers of self belonged to Satan's kingdom. In their attitude toward Christ, all would show on which side they stood. And thus every everyone passes judgment on himself. In the day of final judgment, every lost soul will be understood in the nature of his own rejection of truth. You hearing this? What is it that determines who judges us in the end? The cross will be presented, and its real bearing will be seen by every mind that has been blinded by transgression. Before the vision of Calvary, with its mysterious victims, sinners will stand condemned. Every lying excuse will be swept away. Human apostasy will appear in its heinous character. Men will see that their choice, what their choice has been. Every question of truth and error in the long-standing controversy will have been made plain. In the judgment of the universe. God will stand clear of blame for the existence or continuance of evil. It will be demonstrated that the divine decrees are not accessory to sin. There was no defect in God's government, no cause for disaffection. This idea of judgment under imperial model systems you have to have a magistrate examining evidence and pronouncing judicial decrees, and then um, and then a committee. You know, in some models, you're going to sit on a committee in heaven where you're going to determine how long your, your unsaved cousin has to suffer in the flames before God kills him. This model exists in Adventism yes. because they're operating under a judicial model in which sin is an act which requires external infliction of punishment. But under design model, no, he's our creator, our redeemer. Life only originates in him. Only in reconciliation to him do we have, have eternal life. And if we rebel against him, alienate ourselves from him, judge him to be unworthy of our trust, we've just passed judgment on ourselves. This idea that we accept Jesus or not, is it simply a verbal acknowledgement with a public declaration and a, and a, and a ritualistic dunking? Is that what's necessary? Yes, Wendell.
1: The second question down on the page of Tuesday's lesson talks about the Sanhedrin. What mistakes did these people make? Why do they make them? And how can we protect ourselves from doing something similar concerning how they view Jesus? I think that's the problem. You know, they were protecting themselves. We don't need to get caught up in that same thing.
0: And how much of uh, Christian evangelism is self-centered evangelism? Have you been saved? Have you had your sins paid for? You accepted the blood of Jesus. Do you have Jesus as your mediator pleading your case and advocating for you in heaven? You're on trial. You're in the death chamber. Have you had someone uh, be executed in your place and accepted that payment? How much of it is all about us making sure we get ours? Can a person state publicly that they don't believe in Jesus but still be saved? Yes. Wouldn't it depend on who they understand Jesus to be? Right. Wouldn't that depend on that? Uh, if they had been presented with Jesus of the Crusades. Remember, they went in the Crusades wearing the cross right on their, right on their tunics. And this is the Jesus they're presented with, the one who says, go to war and kill the, the, uh, the one who d- d- disagrees with me. And they go, I reject that Jesus. Does that mean they can't be saved? Or is that Jesus the one that should be rejected because it's a false? Jesus says, false messiahs will go into the world.
3: It may sound kind of harsh, but don't you think most Christianity believes in a pagan God that's in charge of both uh, reward and punishment?
0: There's no qu- desh- question about it. I read some quotes last week from Max Licato, if you remember, in here, and then we've read some stuff that was on Moody Radio recently, and some of the things being said are absolutely that case. It is exactly, a- absolutely what it is. This is out of C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia series. You remember the ca- the Calormine the, the soldier named Emmeth? You remember and after uh, after his death, he finds himself, he was a worshiper of Tash his entire life, but he finds himself face to face with Aslan in, in the promised land. And he says, um, I, I fell at his feet, and those thought, surely this is the hour of my death, for the lion will know that I have served Tash all my days and not him. But Aslan's respond, son, thou art welcome. But I said, alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, but a servant of Tash. He answered, Child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account a service done to me. I questioned the glorious one. Lord, is it then true that thou and Tash are one? The lion growled and said, It is false. Not because he and I are one, but because we are opposites. I take to me the, the services which thou hast done to him. For I and he are such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me. And none which is not vile can be done to him. Therefore, if any man swear by Tash and keepeth his oath for the oath's sake, it is by me that he has truly sworn, though he, though he know it not. And if, and it is I who reward him. And if any man do a cruelty in my name, then though he says the name Aslan, it is Tash whom he serves, and by Tash his deed is accepted. And with question once more, Lord, I have been seeking Tash all my days. Beloved, said the glorious one, unless thy, thy desire had been for me, thou shouldst not have sought for so long and so truly, for all find what they truly seek. What do you think about that? I love that. I just love that.
2: Actions speak louder than words.
0: Yeah, it's about the heart. It's about. It's not about the verbal label you put on the God you worship. Whether you call him Rose of Sharon, Emmanuel, El Shaddai, Yahweh, Jesus, Yahshua, or any other of a thousand names, it really doesn't matter. It's the character that you associate with him and how you understand his methods to work and whether you love and assimilate that into your heart and character and trust in a relationship with him or not. That's really the key. There are many evils done in the name of Jesus in this world. But as this says, they're, they're not actually honoring Jesus. They're honoring the evil one. Wednesday's lesson, The Resurrection. The lesson asks, why is the resurrection of Jesus so pivotal in apostolic preaching and then the faith of the early church. Why is the resurrection so pivotal? Is it pivotal for us today? Yes. Is the resurrection important to you? Yes. Why? He's conquered, death. He's conquered death. It says in Hebrews 2.14, that by his death he might destroy him and hold the power of death. That is the devil, and free those who live all their lives in fear of, as uh, slaves in fear of death. 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 Human beings are, are, are living in fear of death. This is the teaching of the rest. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what does that mean for us? It's a fraud, guys. It's a fraud. It's just a scam. It's a con job. If Jesus didn't rise, it's all a lie. It's meaningless. It's a
1: nice story.
0: It's, yes. I mean, it, it is because, and why, maybe we should ask this question, why did Jesus rise? If you understand, if you look through imposed law, he kept all the right rules, and Satan had no right to keep him in the grave. He made a deal. It was the, it was the deal with the white witch, if you remember, that Aslan made, and that changed the life of Aslan for the sons of Adam, and so he gives his life, but then because he did no wrong, the, the grave couldn't hold him, and he arrives again, and God rewarded him for his perfect character. But if you understand design law, what is the basis of life? You can say it a couple different ways. Where does life originate? God. And when he built other beings to and when he created other living beings, what was the basis for their life? A relationship with him, operating on what protocols?
2: Love and service.
0: The law of love. This is this is how he built it to run. And as long as you are in harmony with this design, you live forever. Amen. Did Christ take upon himself humanity and restore that design perfectly? <clears throat> the resurrection was inevitable. This is why he could be so confident. As long as he continues to live in perfect harmony, he, number one, has the perfect relation with his father, the source of life, but he has his own source because he's divine too. But he's he, in his human mind, his human brain, has restored the human species back to God's original design. The resurrection was inevitable. Because what does the scripture say? The law of the Lord is perfect. What does reviving mean? If somebody has just had a heart attack... And you do CPR, what are you doing to them? You're reviving them. them. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. This is what Jesus did. He revived humanity. It's beautiful. Yes?
1: We've become so darkened in in accepting the fact that death death is the way things operate on this planet. And we forget that life is the default of the universe. How
0: they're designed, but yes. Life
1: is designed this way. We even have savings; the only thing certain, death and taxes. Well, <laughs> death is not certain.
0: No. no. Jesus Himself said, "If you trust in Me, you'll never die."
1: That's what He proved
2: when He rose again.
0: So I uh, thought I'd share with you. I was reading it this week while preparing the lesson. This is out of Second Corinthians five, one through ten, and I wanted to share with you my perspective which is from the remedy. So 5, 1 through 10. Now we know this earthly body is like a tent or a hospital gown that wears out easily and leaves us exposed. And if this earthly body, our, individ- if this earthly body, our individuality currently occupies, is destroyed, we have an eternal body that will never wear out a heavenly dwelling place for our individuality not built by human hands. Meanwhile, the older we get, the more we groan, longing to be free of this deteriorating body and clothed in our perfect heavenly body, because, we, because when we have exchanged this mortal body for our heavenly one, we will not be found sick, dying and exposed. For while we are in this collapsing tent, we groan with the burden of aging and slow decay. We don't want to die to be rid of, we don't want to die to be rid of this worn-out body but to be translated directly into our heavenly body so that this mortal may be swallowed up with eternal life. Now, God's intention for us has never changed. He created us to live eternally and has given us the spirit to heal our minds as the first phase of our restoration, guaranteeing our future complete recreation. We certainly know that as long as this frail body is our home, we remain away from the Lord but we live by trusting God with how things will turn out, not by waiting to see the future restoration. Therefore, we are confident while in this mortal body, even though we prefer to be translated into our heavenly body and be at home with the Lord. Our goal is to please Him by living in harmony with His design for life, whether we are in this mortal body or our heavenly one, for we will all appear in Christ's examining room, so that each one may be accurately diagnosed and receive what his or her condition warrants, whether from compliance or noncompliance with God's treatment plan.
2: Thoughts
0: about that? Do you see how that is taken through the design law view? And if you read it through the, the imperial view, you get a completely different view. Any comments? We have a couple minutes. All right, jumping into Thursday's lesson, then. Yes, yes.
1: How do you uh, how do you understand rewards? Why others will receive more rewards in heaven?
0: How does the design law system work? What is the rewards that we receive under design law system? As we live in harmony with God's law, what impact does our life have on those around us? We become lights to the world. We shine. We are a blessing to other people. And what is there a reward in that? We get the reward, and so the rewards are the rewards of, number one, a healed heart and mind, a peace within. What's Has anybody ever besides me done something for which their conscience convicted them? And and And, and there was a little bit of time you tried to resist setting things right. What, what was it, what was it worth that? What is there, is there a reward and a clear conscience and peace within? And then, what about if you live this life and, and you're an impact on those around you and others are experiencing Jesus because of your witness? And then in the kingdom, you will have people, and this is what Christ talks about, one sows and other reaps and those type of thing, You will, when you get into heaven, having lived a Christ-like life, will have people coming up to you and say, I wouldn't have been here for you. You, you, your witness caused me To reevaluate my life, I want to thank you. That's what I'm saying. In heaven, you're gonna have people for the first time saying this to you. Is there is there a reward in that? I think these are what the rewards are. Some will have very few rewards, like the thief on the cross. He gets few rewards. Have much less than John the Baptist. Why? Because he didn't witness nearly as many people in his experience. In God's kingdom, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And what we think is great in earthly standards is actually meaningless in, in his standards. So it's the greater love we have, the greater relationships we have, the more people we brought to Christ. I think these are incredible rewards that we get. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the uh, truth that, that you have worked through your son Jesus to reveal to us and for the remedy of, of a perfect restored humanity that we can we can have because of what Jesus has done for us. We ask that your Holy Spirit will, will come into our hearts and minds, enlighten us with truth to expel the distortions that we can come into an ever-closer relationship with you, and then recreate us with new motives, new hearts, new desires, taking all that Christ has achieved so it's no longer I, the sinful me, living, but you, the, the perfect Son of God, restoring your character within me. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.